Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective, and I'm here with my co-host, Captain Ed Mamet. Say hello, Ed. Hello, everybody. Glad to be here again with Kevin and our distinguished guest, who I am very fond of. So today on Cop Talk, we're very honored to have the famous judge, Richard Weinberg. Uh, judge Weinberg, as you know, you've heard him on WABC Radio. He has a talk show uh, with... Uh, Cats, as well as with... Um, Let the record show. So I'm on every night with uh, Cats and Cosby on WABC. And I have my own show called Let the Record Show, which is on Saturdays and uh, Sundays in WLAR and WABC. Judge, thank you so much for being here. I know you're very busy. So with that said, we'll get started. Uh, Judge, why don't you tell our audience uh, your background, your distinguished uh, career, how you went from uh, being on the, uh, you know, being on the um, bench to uh, actually uh, broadcast uh, career. Well, my career is a little bit more than broadcasting because I'm the general counsel to the Red Apple Group, which is John Casamitidis' conglomerate. And one of the things I do is uh, the radio with with John and, and my own show, but I also do all kinds of other things, litigation, corporate work, uh, government, government relations. Uh, how I went there, John and I have been friends since 1989, and when I was retiring from the state Supreme Court, John... Uh, asked me what I was going to do after my retirement. And I said, I wasn't sure. He said, why don't you come work for me? And the rest is history. So here I am at uh, the Red Apple Group, and part of uh, our business is uh, the radio station, WABC. And how, how did I do it? Like the rest of my career, series of great brilliance, uh, 5%, and the rest, 95%, uh, just dumb luck. Thank you, Judge. Uh, once again, it's an honor to have you here. And we all go back many, many years. I know you know the captain many, many years, and I know you and I go back even further. You and I were, Kevin, you and I were next door neighbors over on uh, 54th Street when I ran the uh, Midtown Community Court. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, many good cases we've had before you, and um, I wish we still had judges on the bench like yourself today. Um, with that said, I know um, as chief counsel, you were the chief counsel to uh, Peter Vallone, correct? That's correct. And when you were chief counsel to Peter Vallone in the early 90s, uh, you helped create the Safe Streets, Safe City program. Why don't you tell us about that? It was the turning point of the city of New York. We were losing the city. The headlines screaming out in the daily uh, newspapers were, uh, Dave, do something. That was a reference to Mayor Dinkins. There was crime was rampant. Uh, there was a young man named Brian Watkins, came from his family from Utah for the U.S. Open. Uh, he was stabbed to death defending his family, Times Square subway station. I came in that following uh, Monday, and I said to uh, the speaker, Peter Vallone, I said, we're going to lose the city. People are not going to come here. You're going to lose tourism. We have to do something. Peter said, what do you want to do? I said, we need more cops on the street. And Peter said, well, can I do that? I said, it's very simple. You can put it on for a referendum. We can't do it by uh, a local law alone, but we can do it by referendum. And the mayor will uh, will go along with it because the public is crying out for public safety. And to his credit, with the advice and counsel of Judge Milton Mullen, who is a deputy mayor for public safety, we worked out the deal to get the cops on the street. But it was more than cops. It was social workers. It was drug rehab experts. It was more legal aid lawyers, more assistant DAs, more court reporters, more court clerks, more in interpreters. We put together a whole gamut 
of support system in the criminal justice system. And that's what turned the city around, because when Rudy Giuliani became mayor, he was then armed with an army of extra police. The important thing is to have both the reality and the perception of safety, something we do not have today, and it's absolutely essential if the city of New York is to survive. Captain? As I recall, Judge, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't there a special tax levy uh, yes. regarding the telephone service no, to pay for this? There was a surcharge on the uh, on the income tax because the only tax that the uh, the only tax that the city council is allowed to impose by itself without state legislative action is a real property tax. So we needed authorization to get a surcharge on the income tax, and we did that, and that was the funding for the for the program. We had to go up to Albany. We had to have a sign-off from the leaders of the legislature, the governor, and, and the city council, and the mayor. That's how we did it. If such program uh, uh, was created today, I think there'd be a lot of uh, protests. What's your, opinion? On, What's your opinion on that if we I, go I back think, to that? I think uh, you know, there was a, a documentary that just came out. It was called Gotham, the, uh, the Fall and Rise of New York City. It was produced by a, a married couple, Michelle and Matt Taylor. And I was honored and privileged to uh, to be part of that that production. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani was in it. Mayor Bloomberg was in it. Speaker of Alone was in it. Uh, Michael Goodwin of uh, of the Post was in it. Fred Siegel, another great commentator, was in it. Former Lieutenant Governor Richard Ravitch was in it. It was a great it was a great document documentary, and it showed what you need to do to to save a city. The problem we have today, Captain is that we know what to do. And in fact, uh, Ray Kelly, the commissioner, and uh, Bill Bratton, also, also the commissioner, was also in the, in the show, this documentary. We know exactly what to do, but there's not the political will, the social will, to do what has to be done. And that's the tragedy. So we're in the process now of losing the city of New York, which breaks my heart because this is the city I've fought to defend and protect my entire professional career. Why don't you tell our listeners how to access that show that you are a star in? I don't know if I'm a star, I'm a, I'm a contributing face and a voiceover, but thank you for the compliment, Captain. It's very simple, Amazon Prime. You can see it on Amazon Prime. It's worth seeing because the lessons are there. All we have to do is follow them. You know, for many years, um, it looked like crime was going way down nationwide, especially in the city under uh, two prior mayors, uh, Giuliani and Bloomberg. Um, things are different today. What do you have to say about that? I have to say that you have a state legislature, city council, who are rampant left-wingers who do not understand the importance of public safety and law and order. They uh, pass these bills, which they have no expertise in, no experience in, no working hand knowledge of. They have what we used to call in the legislative process feel-good legislation, but feel-good for whom? It's not feeling good for the people who are afraid to ride the subways, walk the streets, come in as tourists that you walk around the city of New York, you see empty storefronts. Half the stores are empty. Half the commercial space is empty. Half the hotels are empty or have been closed. So it's not a good place that we're in now. 484,000 people have left the uh, state of New York in the last uh, 12 months, 2 million in the last 10 years. We're losing the viability of the city and the state of New York, and we have to do something about it. So how do I feel about it? It's about time... These people woke up and understood what they need to do to protect and defend the city, which is you create a climate of lawfulness, not lawlessness. And the recent uh, 
incidents where they tried to close down the subway because they had a political narrative about a, an unfortunate death on the subway is a perfect example of lawlessness. These people should be arrested. They should be prosecuted. If convicted, they should do jail time. They have no right to close down the public walkways or our subways, our bridges, our tunnels. They should learn how to behave. Without public safety, without law and order, you have no civilization. You have no safety for any individual. Everyone is a potential target, and we need to do something about that. You know, for, um, <clears throat> you have an interesting background as a judge. You really have had a lot of dealings with the police going back to safe streets, um, running the, the criminal, the, the special courts. Um, policing today is in crisis because of uh, morale, retention, recruitment. Um, how would you turn that around? To get more, to encourage more people to join police service. Well, the answer is you have to get the uh, the political leadership to recognize the important function of policing. It's not enough that police are there getting the reports in after the crime has been committed. You want them out there to deter crime. You have to respect the police officers. You have to stop challenging them at every opportunity. You have to stop making the police the bad guys because they are the barrier between total disorder and anarchy and civilization. If you don't have an effective police force, then it's a struggle of each against each, as Thomas Hobbes said, Leviathan, and it's a horrible thing. And uh, Santayana said that if you forget history, you're doomed to repeat it. And what I'm deeply concerned about is at this moment in time, we have forgotten our history and the important role of the police in protecting citizenry and stop the political narratives against the police and against public safety because it was a losing arguments. You will lose the tax base, the productive people of the city and the state. They will flee if they don't feel it's safe. They can't raise their children here. They can't send their kids to school here. They don't want to do business here. This is a terrible crisis, and it's about time people started acting like grown-ups and started enforcing the laws rather than making excuses for not enforcing the laws. Judge, you were the presiding judge of Manhattan's Midtown Criminal Court, Community Court, in the mid-2000s. As well as uh, after I did that, I was the presiding justice for the entire city of the Special Narcotics Courts as well. How is that different from a traditional courtroom, being in a community court? Well, community courts and, and the Special Narcotics Court give programs. And I happen to be a big fan of programs. Jeremy Travers, the former deputy police commissioner, wrote a book, but they all come back. It talks about the problem of recidivism. Some recidivists you can help. You can put them into programs. You can get them off drug addiction. You can give them job skills, educational background. You can help. Some people are worthy of being put in programs and being diverted from, from jail time. And I support that. But I don't support that for criminal recidivists who are predators. I don't support that for violent criminals. So I was always looking to see if I could help people get off narcotics get out of prostitution, get out of uh, panhandling and fair beating and lead uh, productive lives and being good citizens. But I was never hesitant if they failed to do the program to uh, then put them. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno 
Bruno. He's your numero uno. In jail. You have to have that appropriate balance. Diversion programs are fine, but they're not fine for everyone. And if they fail to do the programs and hold themselves accountable by having personal responsibility for their own conduct, then, Kevin, you have to hold them accountable by putting them in jail and protecting the public. Basically, Midtown Community Court uh, oversaw initiative programs for dealing with drugs, prostitution, uh, homelessness. Quality of life. Quality we, of con- life. we constantly, as you know, Kevin, being our next door neighbor, when you're in, uh, in, in Midtown North, which is right next to the Midtown Community yes. Court, we were always creating, when I was there, we were always creating programs. So, for example, if there's a problem with uh, drug addiction, we would do that. If there was problems with uh, prostitution, whether it was male prostitution, female prostitution, transgender prostitution, uh, prostitution, we would create programs for those, uh, those constituencies. If you had the uh, people driving these, uh, these pedicabs, we created programs for that. We created programs for shoplifting recidivists. We're always looking to create programs. We had created programs for street vendors. The way I looked at it, coming out of my legislative background as the general counsel, city council, if I could create a program that gave people help and made the quality of life better, I would do that. But never at the cost of public safety. You think we should bring back the quality of life? Absolutely. Broken window theory, which is that you go after little crimes to create a a sense of order in in the streets and the subways, is very, very important. Without a sense of order, everything becomes chaos. The broken window theory is if you don't enforce the little stuff, then you create this climate of lawlessness that encourages the big stuff to happen, the big crimes to happen. If you don't, if you don't pay your fare in a subway, Kevin, and you jump the turnstiles, when you pick people up on that, you find out that they have uh, long rap sheets and they have warrants against them. So that program of quality of life policing is absolutely essential. If you have dirty streets, if you have people hassling drivers by these squeegee operators, you're saying it's not safe to drive into the city. You're harassing people. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. You know, you made a, you made a point, I, I must jump in, uh, regarding the uh, fair beating, uh, jumping the turnstiles. <clears throat> On Saturday, the New York Post quoted me about that. There's a member of the city council who wants the police to hand out flyers to fair beaters, telling them that there are other ways to do things. And I was interviewed by the Post, and I said, I didn't join the police department to give out flyers. I said, the best thing, if you want to stop crime in the subway, is arrest everybody for fair beating and check them for warrants. Listen, Ed, that's an excellent point. In in my time on the bench, and I haven't looked at it recently, but I think it's still the law, uh, fair beating was a misdemeanor, punished by up to a year in jail. So that gives you the... uh, the wherewithal to hold people accountable. Uh, you know, the MTA wants to impose this uh, this program called congestion pricing because they're running out of revenue. Well, maybe if they made everybody pay their fare, they wouldn't be running out of revenue so quickly. That's true. And congestion pricing is another bad idea because it discourages people from coming into the city and it penalizes tourism. And that hurts the business community. It hurts the hotels, it hurts the restaurants, it hurts the theater, it hurts the museums, the cultural institutions. It's a ridiculous idea. Why do you need congestion pricing? They they say it's not a revenue gatherer. Of course it is. It's a total misrepresentation to say it's not a grab for money. It's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a grab for money and it should be beaten back because you're discriminating against uh, commuters. And you want the commuters in because you want to sustain the economic viability of the city. True. You know, Judge, you had a tremendous track record, about 80% compliance 
with alternative sanctions like community service. Absolutely. What do you think made the Midtown Community Court as effective? We had a wonderful staff. Right. And you we had, had, well, I don't know about me, but you had a, thanks, Kevin. You had a, you had a wonderful staff, and they worked very, very hard to get people into programs and to monitor their compliance. And one of the ways it works is when people are in programs, we would get reports on these people, see whether they're doing the program, whether it's drug treatment or an anti-prostitution program or a program with respect to shoplifting or fair beating or pedicabs or vendors. We would enforce it by having compliance reports by the staff and holding people accountable if they didn't do the programs. And that's the that's the secret of making it work. We had professional staff that did the work. Yes, you did have a good staff there, and you had a great neighbor next door, Midtown North Prison. <laughs> they they had they had a guy. I don't know if you ever met him, but who was the the best dressed detective in the entire city of New York. And the reason I know that Kevin is one I saw this detective on a regular basis, and two I read about it in the New York Times. They described him as the best dressed. Best dressed detective. He, by the way, he gave me a run for money for being the best dressed guy on uh, on Fifty Fourth Street. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we had some great times. Thank you, Judge Captain. Judge, what are some of the weirdest cases that you uh, presided over? Strangest, weirdest, however you want to describe. Uh, I will tell you. Well, I had people who pushed other people in front of subway cars, which I I found absolutely heartbreaking, and raises the question of why we left the mentally ill who are predators and violent out on the streets. And it's because you, you opened up the, the asylums, the healthcare facilities. You went from, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30,000 people in, in healthcare for, for mental illness to about 3,000 today. So what do you expect? Crime is going to go up. And having those cases was always horrifying. It's the, what I call the urban nightmare. You're minding your own business. You're trying to get on a subway car and somebody shoves you in the front of a train. That's uh, pretty awful. But the most... Horrible. And I had murders and rapists and kidnappers before me. But the one case that was the most troubling to me in all the years, the 15 years I was on the bench, first criminal court, then Supreme, was a father who was involved in a nasty uh, divorce proceeding with his wife. And he had custody for his son over the weekend and an act of rage against the wife. He stripped his child naked, took a uh, cigarette lighter and burned his own child's genitals with a, uh, with a cigarette lighter. And, they, and when that case came before me, I was, I was sitting in court. They wanted me to take a, uh, a misdemeanor plea on that. And I told the DA in the part, I wasn't going to do that. This was absolutely reprehensible. I want to give this guy serious time. It was serious felony time. And I was not going to let him cop to a uh, to misdemeanor. I said, uh, you tell Mr. Morgenthau, who's in the DA, if he wants me to do this, he better come down to my courtroom and explain to me why I should be taking a plea on a misdemeanor to something as horrible, as horrifying as that. That kid was scarred both physically and mentally for the rest of his life. And I'm going to give him a slap on a misdemeanor. I said, I'm not going to do that. So the DA was not available that day, but he sent one of his senior people in. And we met in my robing room. And they explained to me they didn't want to put the child through uh, a trial. I said, I understand that, and I don't want to traumatize the child any further to testify against the father. But I would be damned if I was going to do a misdemeanor plea. So if they wanted to do a misdemeanor plea, you could get some other judge to do it, because I would not do that. So after serious negotiations, they went back to defense counsel and they said, this judge 
meaning me, was not going to do that. They pled him out to a felony with substantial time. And I was very happy to have that uh, that plea taken and given him substantial time because he earned it. One of the other things I did, Ed, was I ran the version in Special Narcotics, as you know, after I ran Midtown. And one day I'm reading the New York Times on a Sunday, and I'm reading about a doctor, and it was a three-page article in the New York Times on a weekend, and said about how she would put into a diversion program and how it saved her life, her career was saved, her life was saved. And I said, this is very interesting. I kept reading the, reading the article, and I found out the judge who put this doctor in this diversion program was me. I said, well, I must have done a good job because I actually saved her life and I, I saved her career because I let her do a diversion program without pleading to a felony as the usual course because a judge is allowed to do that under state diversion law. And I did that because I knew if she pled out to a felony, she would immediately lose her medical license, her career would be over, and her life could very well be over. So I suggested to both the defense counsel and the DA that if they made an application, I would grant it for, under exceptional circumstances to let her do a program or successfully complete the program or dismiss the case. And that's exactly what happened. She successfully completed the drug program. I dismissed the case. Her career was saved. Her life was saved. And I was very happy to do that. In the article in the, uh, in the Times, they went out and they quoted the New York Post, chastising me because the only reason I did this is she was some sort of celebrity. And I tell you, before man and God, I had no idea who this lady was. All she was to me was a defendant whose life I was trying to save by giving her a program and to save her career and save her life. And I'm, I'm proud I did that. It was the right decision, and I stand by that decision. That's why you were such a good judge. Now, I know in the past you told me that you always wanted to be a judge. Now that that career is over and you're on to something else, which did you enjoy more, uh, being a judge or doing what you're doing now by um, influencing public policy, uh, public influencing the public uh, through your radio broadcasts? One of my friends, when I was assistant attorney general of the state, and I was offered the position as general counsel to the council and chief counsel to the speaker, and I was hesitating on this. I had a conversation with one of my close friends, and he said, Richard, some people like us are doomed to have a series of interesting jobs. And I've been very fortunate, Ed, to have been doomed to have a series of interesting jobs. Every job I've ever had, I've always found interesting. I always try to do the best I could. I've tried to make a, a contribution. I've always worked hard at. So do I do I love being uh, John Caspi's general counsel and being on the radio show and having my own show? I adore it. Do I uh, love being a judge? I adore that. Do I love being Peter Vallone's uh, Conciliary's general counsel, counsel, and chief counsel speaker, and I adored that. And I adored being a law clerk to a federal judge, and I adored being a law professor for 20-odd years. I adored them all, and every day I get up with a purpose, and I'm happy to do it, and I continue to do this until they carry me out of the Red Apple Group. John Katsimatidis is very lucky to have you on board. That's all I have to say. Well, Ed, you're, you're a friend, so therefore you're biased, so therefore we have to, no, disregard, no, we have you. to disregard your testimony. <laughs> no, I second that. I'll swear to that. I you too, Kevin. But uh, Judge, um, you know, you, you, uh, you're, one, you're our favorite judge, okay? The city misses you. The city needs you. Um, can, we, can we get a row back on you and put you downtown uh, on Center mm -hmm. Street? No, I, Ed, Ed and uh, Kevin, as you both know, I, I retired. I've been with uh, the Red Apple Group now for six and a half years. I'm very happy where I am. Uh, former Governor David Patterson, who's uh, on the Cass and Cosby show with us a couple of nights a week. Ed, not, Ed, I have to tell you that David and I are very, very close. Uh, we like each other enormously. 
And I always kid Patterson by saying, you know, you had the chance to put me on the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court in the state, when you were governor, and you failed to do that. And then uh, Governor Patterson looks at me and says, no, Richard, the mistake I made was not making you my counsel. <laughs> <laughs> Judge, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, your show, Let the Record Show, on WLIR on Saturdays from 4 to 5 p.m. And Sundays, WABC Radio from 6 to 7 a.m. And also at night, Monday through Friday, with John Katzmatidis and Rita Cosby, uh, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m., correct? That's exactly correct, Kevin. And, and thank you for that promotion. And we're always... Want to have wonderful listeners listening to our shows. Thank you. So I'd like to thank my host, Captain Ed, our our, uh, our Honorable Judge Weinberg, for being here today. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cop Talk. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe. And everyone, be safe out there. Until next time. Thank you. God bless.